The Thriving Over Surviving podcast is for informational and inspirational purposes and not meant to be medical advice. Please consult your physician for any medical issues you may be facing. The opinions expressed by guests and advertisers are their own and not necessarily the opinions of Thriving Over Surviving podcast. So walking was my coping mechanism in life a lot of time. People run marathons. I just walked miles and it really was enjoyable. So here I am starting to limp, losing my ability to walk, my safety is going down the hill and trying to figure out how do I transition? Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast, where we discuss the ups and downs of our autoimmune diagnoses, but ultimately how we thrive in spite of it. I'm your host, Edie Sahesian. I was diagnosed in 2015 with multiple sclerosis. I've learned a lot about MS in myself over the past few years, but the most important thing I realize is that I am going to live my best life. MS and other autoimmune diseases tend to be a bit of a bummer if we let them. So why not battle back by finding our joy? The other day I was on socials and a woman remarked she loved to be the center of attention, but when she started using her mobility aid on the regular, her aid got all the attention and she's a little bitter about it. I've never thought about it that way before and I'd like to explore that a little bit. Today we're going to go into this topic and discuss mobility aids a little bit further with my guest, Noelle. Diagnosed over 20 years ago, this SPMS thriver and mother of three has a lot to share with us from her ability to empathize with others and her moves on the boxing ring. She wants to change the stigma around using a mobility device. And she believes that you can live a fabulous life even with a chronic illness. She is a licensed independent social worker whose main goal it is to help other warriors. Let's chat it up with Noelle. Hello, how are you? Good morning, how are you? It's so nice to get to hook up with you and have this chat. And I want to go right into it, Noelle. So 20 years ago, you, about, you were diagnosed with, at first, relapsing remitting. Can you share that story with us? Sure. So a little hiccup is that over about 22 years ago, I was 17 and I was the lead of the music for my high school in the music man. I was marrying the librarian. I happened to get pushed off of the stage and I fell and I was at a boarding school. And so I really just didn't think anything of it. And I noticed that my toes started to tingle a few hours after I fell. And I said, oh, that's kind of weird. So I just went on doing high school like any normal high school kid would do. And the tingle started to slowly move up to my knees. And then it started to become painful um, with a nerval reaction. I didn't know what to do. I told my house parent, she took me to the hospital and they said, there's nothing wrong with you. Why would you come to the emergency room? And basically treated me like a crazy 17-year-old girl. I ended up at a neurologist in New Jersey because that's where I'm originally from. And he basically said that to my mother. And also in the same breath said, but it could be MS. And what was really difficult about that was looking back on it is it was my first relapse. And as my doctors looked at that, they knew that. 
But unfortunately, I didn't get the care I needed until about six years later. I was at my first job after I graduated college, and I was working with adults with disabilities, and I got assaulted, and I got punched in the face. And it turned out I had a lesion on the back of my neck that triggered another MS relapse. And even though we knew the last five to six years before that, that there was something going on. I would always go to the doctors and say, I'm having this numbness, I'm having this tingling, and no one really listened to me. And it wasn't until I started losing the left side of my body when I would sneeze, which was triggered from the lesion on the back of my neck, I finally got an MRI and I got the diagnosis. But it took a whole nother year to get someone to be like, let's give you medication. Because for the longest, I just kept hearing you're so young, we don't want you to inject yourself because that's all they had back then. And it was really fighting against the stigma of what it was to have MS at a young age at that point. So that's pretty much how I got diagnosed. And so you're in your early 20s. And what's going through your mind? Like, how did that impact your daily life? It was really hard. I lived, my whole family was in New Jersey. I was walking the dog when the neurologist called me and said, we think you have MS on the phone. And so I was utterly shocked. And I called up my dad and I said, they said they think I have a mess. They found a lesion. And he said, this is just his coping mechanism is your mom is finishing her master's. She has a paper due tomorrow. Let's talk about it in three days. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, okay. And that's kind of how I think my mentality of dust yourself off and just keep on going attitude is because that's the way I was raised is you have a challenge, you got to face it and you got to figure it out. So during that year of finally getting diagnosed, I was crazy and decided I'm going to apply to get a master's at Boston College in social work. Because for me, I needed something that I could hopefully control, but also just put into the wind as someone who is learning disabled. I never thought I would be able to go to a, co a college like Boston College. I was told I would never graduate high school, let alone college. So when I got into BC, it was just a miracle. And I kind of focused on that during the whole diagnosis. And I knew that I needed something to focus on. And so what ended up happening was three weeks into Boston College, I have a massive relapse and had to learn to rewalk. But luckily, I just said, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep going to school. So I was there with my wheelchair. I was there with my walker. I kept going to physical therapy. And I still got my master's on time. Holy cow. That's, that's some perseverance there, right? And you must have been hyper-focused on your goals in order to accomplish that and to keep working to get your physical body in the right place. Oh, definitely. And even so I was in a three-year program while that was happening and I was, my MS was completely uncontrolled during those three years. So I was relapsing every six to eight weeks, was having new relapses. We discovered that I was allergic to all of the medication that they had out on the market for MS at that time. So I could not be, I couldn't take anything. So the last straw was to try rituximab, so a chemotherapy every six months. And it worked. It turned out I was allergic. So they did a desensitization process to get me to be able to, but it put me in remission. 
And that was awesome. I don't know. I guess the support of my family and also the empathy that I gave myself, I just kind of rolled with it. And as you said, like you deal with it with humor. That's kind of how I dealt with it. Like the first time I ended up peeing myself walking from a college class to my car, it was snowing and I was walking with a professor and I was like, you know, whatever, like (laughs) what am I supposed to do? I I could either cry about it and feel bad for myself or I could just pick myself up, laugh and be like, well, shit happens. (laughs) I love it. So (laughs) yeah, you had identified your core values as empathy and humor. And I just love that, you know, humor is one of mine and it just helps to infuse that laughter, infuse that lightheartedness into everything that I do because it just makes things more enjoyable. So, you know, laughing at yourself when those kind of situations happen, I mean, it's kind of, it's therapeutic, it's coping, it's all of those things. We need to face the reality. And I guess that's where your other core value of empathy comes in. You had mentioned to me that you feel as though you're super empathetic to toward your own issues and therefore it reflects onto others and your relationships. Can you share some more of that thought process with us? Well, I think at a very young age, my parents instilled in me, treat people the way you want to be treated. And I think that that also goes with ourselves. I think sometimes people just have such high expectations of themselves, but also don't give time to just give peace to their own self that we're not perfect. And so I always knew that I wanted a career in helping others. And I think that's why I chose social work. And so I ended up, while the whole dealing with MS, I decided to work in a hospital and I did inpatient social work. And I felt a connection because I can empathize with what it was like to be a patient. And that gave me ability to also advocate for the patients with the doctor because I knew what it was like not to be listened to. I knew what it was like to be questioned all the time about what symptoms you were feeling or your experience or the fact that sometimes you need to process a diagnosis and you're not going to listen to it. So to be able to be that support for other people is so important to me. And I think that that just has just carried on into my life and my daily values that everyone is dealing with something. You might not know what it is and they might look perfect on the outside, but there's shit brewing behind them. You just don't know (laughs) it, you know? (laughs) And it's just being able to take a step back and say, Okay, so the person was rude, but maybe there was a reason they'd be rude, you know? And I mean, in the moment, sometimes it's hard to think that way. Sometimes it's easier to get frustrated and get angry at someone. But sometimes you got to just take a deep breath and say, if I was in that situation, how would I want someone to treat me? And I think that that's the big question. Mm -hmm. It's hard to think of people putting themselves in other people's shoes because they are having such difficulty dealing with their own stuff. And that's why I think I like meeting people and learning their stories and kind of just allowing to have a listening ear. Because I think sometimes a lot of people don't have that in their lives to have someone to connect with. 
So my favorite thing is one of the best things that I've gotten out of MS is meeting one of my best friends. Jess is my best friend in my ear. I met her on Instagram in 2020 and we just met a few weeks ago for the first time. And it was amazing because I think what is so great is to have another friend who has MS who can just be your sounding board. And she's someone that when I have stress, like out in the community, I come back and I say, well, this is what happened today. And she's able to listen to me and then tell me, well, this is how you can cope with it. And maybe this is what's going on with them. Or if I meet someone recently, I met someone that has MS and I just had a bit different point of view than them. Mm -hmm. And it was hard for me to process, but to have someone else that was able to listen to me and kind of give me what that other person's point of view might be really allowed me to accept how I was feeling, but also to be more open to what they might be experiencing. Love that you met someone online that's such good friends with you now. That is such a great story and such a like an empowering thing, right? To seek out people that can provide that different perspective for you and then to become so close like that and have so much in common. That's a pretty cool thing. Oh, definitely. And I think it was just very random. I mean, there's no reason. She lives in Canada. We have totally different lives. There's no reason we should have ever met. And all it took was her responding to one Instagram post that I posted. And we just decided to do a Zoom call and it's history. I don't think we go a day without a checking in or just a rocket, have an awesome day kind of message. And I think that when someone has values that you have, it's, it really helps. But I also think when you have someone who gets an illness and understands what it's like to have a family and to raise children while having a chronic illness really helps also. And it was a friendship that I didn't realize I needed in my life, but I now can never go without it. What a fantastic way to start my day hearing this wonderful story of friendship from you guys. And I think something that you said there was pretty poignant. Finding people that have those same values as you do, I think fills your bucket. I think gives you some, you know, buddy to lean on. But I also like that this person shares in others' perspectives and can help break those things down and break down barriers that other people are feeling with you and have that sounding board. That is fantastic, Noel. I'm super stoked for you. So let's talk a little bit more about your progression from relapsing, remitting to secondary progressive. So that happened around three years ago. So it kind of happened. We knew that it was happening, but I think what really did was I had a major fall. And then within a few weeks, I just started having major decline um, pretty rapidly. Um, so my major symptom has always been in my right leg that whenever I got tired, it was, it would drag, it would limp. I would have issues, but every time I could rest, I regained it, regained my strength. But then it just came to, I just, it never regained its strength anymore. It was just always dragging. The drop foot was always having issues. I was falling more. 
And so I, when the falls, well, I guess I want to say it was a year before I went into secondary progressive, I decided to seek a physical therapist who specialized in MS. And so I saw her for a while and I was doing really, really well. And then when we saw the downward decline, she looked at me and she said, you're definitely moved into secondary progressive and the doctors confirmed it. And then we said, well, now we've got to focus on safety and we have to focus on what's going to keep you safe around the house, out in the community. And I think for a while, I really, I don't know, I guess I was nervous. I mean, here I am like 37 years old and being told that I'm going to have to use a cane or a walker for safety. And I just didn't know how to handle it. So for a few months, I really pushed back and I just dealt with the limping leg and the falls and dealing with everything. And then COVID strikes and I'm finding myself needing to isolate, but also wanting to go out in the community and take a walk. Because for me, walking has always been my, I guess my support around anxiety. If I was anxious, if I was upset, I always walked. I always took a walk. And even when my husband and I started dating, we always had our best conversations walking. So walking was my coping mechanism in life a lot of time. People run marathons. I just walked miles and it really was enjoyable. So here I am starting to limp, losing my ability to walk, my safety is going downhill and trying to figure out how do I transition? So what ended up finally was I started with a walking stick and my mother-in-law and father-in-law hike a lot. So they had two walking sticks and I started off with one walking stick and I just got used to being in public with a walking stick. And of course I got questions everywhere I went about it. And I just said, oh, I just need it for support. And then we finally looked at each other and said, it's time for a walker. You gotta, we gotta do the walker. And so it's still COVID, not a lot of situations, not going out very much, but we decided to go to a park. My brand new walker came in the mail. I take it out and I go to walk and within 20 feet of walking, my first time with my walker, a woman comes up to me and says, oh, are you trying out this walker for someone? Are you like a physical therapist? And I looked at her and I was like, no, this is for me. And she said, oh. And so then all of a sudden she just looks and goes, why do you need a walker? And I was like, I have MS and I, I need help and support outside for safety. And she goes, oh, okay. Well, I was just wondering and walks away. And I'm looking at my mother-in-law who's with me and I said, Jeez, I just used the walker for the first time and I'm already questioned about it. And so I did get a little upset. I remember on Instagram, I did a post about it and someone was like, well, don't you like educating people? I'm like, yeah, but that moment was, I was struggling. There's moments that, yes, I feel completely open to people coming up to me and wanting to learn about MS, perfectly fine. But in that situation, I'm going outside my comfort zone to use a walker and to already be questioned really impacted, I think, my self-esteem. Just like questioned of what I was going to have to deal with with people looking and watching. So it's been about two years with the walker. I'm perfectly comfortable using it now. I mean, I can care less. People stare. People ask questions. People take pictures of it just for their own, like, 
family member who might need a walker. So I feel like I'm making people realize that it's okay. It's okay to be out there in the community with a walker. My kids don't think anything of it. We have little bags on it. They end up putting all their toys on the walker. They put their water bottles on it. It's kind of just part of me. And even with my canes, like my kids just play sword fights with it. You know, they kind of, it's just something that's around. It's just a normal thing. And they're very into making sure that I'm safe and making sure that I have the cane and will walk with me. And I think as much as it's a transition for yourself and your self-esteem to just feel comfortable with this new as I say, fashion statement. It's also making your family and friends around you try to kind of figure out how they feel. So I remember I'm walking with my six-year-old and he just looked at me and said, so mom, when are you not going to have to use this walker anymore? And I was like, buddy, I think I'm going to be using it for a while. I think it's kind of part of my life now. And I said, does that upset you? And he said, no, not really. I mean, it is what it is. And I think that that's really good to show that if my six-year-old doesn't care that I use a walker, why should anyone else care? I think the biggest part is more the questioning looks. People always want to know why. And I think that that is sometimes hard, especially for my husband, especially around parking lots and handicapped placards and people just seeing me before they see the walker, before they see the cane, kind of questioning if I really need it. That's always been a hard challenge with my family. We have had a lot of people come up and say discouraging comments to us about parking and handicap, and that's hard, but I think you just roll with it. I mean, now nowadays with the walker, I get a little bit less questioning looks. Sometimes I even had someone recently question if I really needed the can or the walker or if I was using it just the parking handicap, which which I just laughed because that is something that you have to just find humor that someone was questioning if I was using a prop. Um, but it's one of those things that I think it's important for people to know that you're beautiful no matter what you need to use to keep you safe because that's the bottom line. It's safety. It's giving you independence to be out in the world and being able to participate. I mean, I get to walk with my kids. I get to hike with my kids. I'm able to independently go to the grocery store myself now and feel safe. That's what's most important is finding your freedom and your self-esteem and your independence because that's what it provides you. And it provides you safety. Why allow people's questioning looks and comments impact your daily life because the fact is is you can still rock it and live your life and be proud of yourself even with using a device it does not define who you are what your ability is if you're able to love if you're able to care that's not what matters all it is is something that can help you and keep you safe people don't come up to me and say oh why are you wearing your glasses or why do you use contacts i mean it's the same exact thing as that I use my glasses to see. I'm using a cane to be able to walk safely. Okay, that's a mic drop right there. I think that in the grand scheme of the world, that's it. What you said, this does not define me. It allows me independence. 
And at the end of the day, that's just what we want. I, I'm a very independent person. I can hear it in you. Like you didn't stop when you had to be in that wheelchair. You you went back to school. And it's not allowing the societal issues and other people's stigmas and other people's evaluation drive the decisions you're making for you to allow for that independence. Noelle, you're pretty fabulous. So <laughs> you also have this other thing going on and I'm going to try and pronounce it. So you get these things called IVIG infusions for hemogabaglobulinemia. Did I kind of say it right? Can you share? Hypogammaglobulinemia. And it took me a long time to be able to pronounce it. And even my friends say, you've had it for almost three years now and we still can't pronounce it. <laughs> it's a that's what she said moment for me right there. <laughs> so what is this thing? What are you dealing with? So what basically happened was I've had a lot of infections my whole life and we couldn't figure out why I was having the infections. And so then after my third baby, I decided to breastfeed as long as I could, you know, as long as my MS was pretty much under control. And then when I stopped breastfeeding, my MS doctor said, come to me and we'll start you on Ocrevus. The way she starts every patient on Ocrevus is to do blood work to make sure that your immune system is functioning well enough to take it because it does suppress your immune system. So she took my blood work, she tested it, she called me, she goes, oh, we're a little concerned. Um, your immune system is on the low side. So let's vaccinate you for pneumonia and meningitis. And I said, okay. And she goes, and we'll, put, we'll draw your titers two weeks later, no big deal. I've seen this, it's fine. And then we'll start you on the okra vest. So two weeks later after I had the shots, they drew my titers and I didn't hear from her for a few, like for two weeks. And I was like, this is strange. Like I'm not getting my okra vest like on Monday. Shouldn't I hear like what's going on? She called me on the weekend and she said, you don't have an immune system pretty much. You have not, no, nothing to fight meningitis. You have nothing to fight pneumonia. You have nothing to fight streptococcus. She goes, you are extremely high for infection rate. For infections that can really hurt you or kill you. And so it turned out that all these infections that I had, like I had hand, foot, and mouth for six months. I had RSV, which is child pneumonia, twice. I had a gland removed that had bacteria in it. I used to get sick pretty much every three weeks or so. So then all the puzzle pieces started getting put together of why I was getting all these infections and why I was so sick. The way basically IVIG is basically a donated immune system. It's antibodies that are taken out of blood donations that is turned into an infusion. And I receive that infusion every four weeks to build up my immune system. So we had to do, I think, four to five months of IVIG to build up the immune system to a level that I then could safely go on Ocrevus. To my understanding, this, this is done in your home and your kids see you do this and they actually named your IV stand. What? 
Jenny, they keep changing the name. I feel like every time I have the infusion, they change the name. But I also have like a pump and one day it might be Betty. One day it might be like Rocky. Like they kind of change it. But it's just part of our lives now. Like I was supposed to have my infusion after this. And I didn't have a nurse, so they call me up last night and was like, can we come over right now <laughs> and infuse you? It gets a little crazy, and I just look at my kids and say, oh, the nurse is coming. We, I have to do my medicine. And it's just part of their lives and my lives. They really started, I used to, I don't want to say hide it from them. They knew I had it, but when I used to always make sure I had my infusion while they were at school, because I still wanted to be mom. Um, and even though I know that it takes me some time to recover from the infusions, I still wanted them to see me as me and not as mom who's sick in a chair on an IV. But when COVID struck, there was nothing I could do. They were around me 24 hours a day. So they got to see the infusion. And it was interesting to experience. I think that's when we started normalizing the experience and encouraging them to name my IV poles, to name my pump to talk about it, to become friends with my nurse. My little daughter would be like, oh, I grew out of my clothes. Can I give it to Carrie's daughter, you know? So it became just a part of my everyday life. And I think what's also great is to have a nurse or to have someone who's willing to talk and work with your children. She would call it my superpower, like my superpower drug, like almost like superwoman. And I need to get my infusion to get my superpowers. and. The kids love that. And I think that they're really comfortable. Like Ferris will sit there and be like, oh, how does the IV go in? Like, can you show me this? Can you show me that? Oh, the blood pressure cuff. Oh, can I try it? You know, and I think as long as you normalize these situations for children, they can accept it and they won't be afraid of it. I do have my middle son is a little more anxious and nervous, which we understand and we accept that, but we do keep a safe, open place for him to be able to talk about it. It was a little harder when COVID struck because of how even more at risk I was. So we did have to be, we did move to Cape Cod, couldn't be in Boston. We were very, very isolated for a little bit longer than the average person. And even when life started coming back, my doctor still had me isolated till last May of 2020. I was pretty much still quarantining, but my kids, they were awesome. They rocked it. They rolled with it. My six-year-old <laughs> go up to people and be like, hey, you need to put your mask on. You need to keep my mom safe. And I kind of loved that. I loved that he felt comfortable to advocate for me. And I see that in a regular basis. When we did start going out in the community with my walker and even in masks, a woman one time at a museum, my oldest overheard her make a comment of why they were letting us skip the line. And my son turned around when she, he heard the comment and said, because my mom has MS and can't stand in a line like this because of her legs. And just turned right back around and kept walking. And we overheard the woman go, oh, okay. And I think that that's what's really important is to also give your children a voice and to talk about it with them and to make them feel very comfortable. And even their friends. I mean, when their friends ask a question, they're like, oh, my mom has issues walking. And they're like, oh, okay, no problem. I think what also helps is that I'm pretty fearless. So when we're out in the community, 
or on our boat. I'm like, oh, you want me to jump off the boat? Sure, I'll jump off the boat. Oh, you want to go rafting? Whatever. Like, just heave me onto the raft. (laughs) It doesn't have to be pretty, you know, like, it might take a struggle getting me off the raft. But I do it. (laughs) And I show them that I still am willing to live life and try things. This weekend, we're going skiing for the last ski weekend. And unfortunately, I probably won't be able to ski, but our friends arranged that the ski mountain rescue team is going to bring me down in their little, like, little bobsled so that I could still be on the mountain with the kids skiing. And I think it's going outside the box and being able to say, like, to them, like, oh, next year, let's go to a mountain that I might be able to ski and learn how to do some disabled skiing. And they like that. They like that I'm always willing to at least try. Absolutely. And I think that this is a testament to, you know, your understanding of what empathy is and your kids are having those same types of feelings when they are approaching others about your situation. But I can think that they're going to have those feelings about other people as well, having been through this with you and seeing how you deal with things. So the perseverance there is incredible. To model that for your kids is, I I mean, I don't want to say it's a blessing, but it kind of is that they're having that experience with you firsthand. And the way that you're approaching all of it is in this such healthy, open manner. It must bring your family together. You guys must be very tight. We are. And I think we're very open with talking about fears and talking about anxiety and talking about situations. And so I'm going to tell an embarrassing story about myself. So with MS, of course, sometimes you have bladder issues. And that's something I've struggled with for years. And so I will never forget the time my two-year-old was being potty trained and my four-year-old was talking to him. And my two-year-old was upset that he had an accident because he really didn't want to have an accident. He really wanted to just wear big boy underwear. And my four-year-old looked at him and said, Seamus, don't worry about it. Mom pees herself all the time. It's just part of life. And, And I love that story because I think it just shows that they are just, they can like just be so empathetic to each other and also just be like, you got this. Like, it's okay that you had an accident. You're still, you're fine. You're going to get potty trained. Like, don't worry about it. This happens. This does happen. And so along with all these things that you already do, especially with your mental mindset stuff, I understand that you've taken up boxing as well. Can you share with us a little bit about this? Sure. So I started to lose the ability to kind of use my arm and my hand. It was getting more difficult to use my dominant hand. And I was like, I got to do something. What can I do to kind of get stronger and to push back? And so I knew of a local nonprofit called Punch for Parkinson's. And the founding guy, Ryan, his daughter goes to the same school as my children And I just saw him in the parking lot and said, you know, I'm going to ask if I can join his boxing program for Parkinson's patients and just go for it. So I walked up to him and just said, hey, Ryan, have you ever had an MS patient try your program before? And he said, no, let me talk 
to my guy and see if he feels comfortable. And so that's where it all started was I started working one-on-one doing boxing and it's been awesome. It really has taught me that you can get stronger even with secondary progressive. You can build muscle, you can work on your balance, you can figure out how to weight lift and feel comfortable. We, I do boxing twice a week and it is, I've really helped with my mental and my physical and feeling confident, which I think is really awesome. I'm doing things that I never thought I could do. When I start deadlifting, I'm like, me? Deadlifting? I can deadlift? And to hear him say, oh my God, Noel, you have such a strong core. You have such strong legs. I'm like, I'm losing the ability to walk. I have strong legs. Like, you just, it just boggles my mind. And of course, it is situated in a way that it is safe for me. Everything is done in a safety mode. And it's great to have someone who's willing to work with you who doesn't know about MS but wants to learn about MS and basically sees you as who you are and not what your chronic illness is and not the challenges you have just will work and help you grow as a person and realize that you can get stronger. And it's been great to watch my husband and my kids see the videos of me boxing to see how proud they are and they just glow and they're like, I can't believe you can do that. And I just got my first pair of boxing gloves yesterday. And when they came in, everyone couldn't, they were so excited and it just makes me so excited and they love experiencing it. And so now they're going to start getting into boxing, which I think is great for their self-esteem also. And it just shows that I might be losing the ability to walk and I might have challenges and I might have, I might drop stuff. I might have issues, but I can also kick ass. I was just going to say they realize their mom is a badass. It's so great. <laughs> this is so empowering, right? It's got to feel like you're, you have this power to rise above all of it. I know that sounds so cheesy, but really, I mean, you're taking it, control of it in your hands. I was going to ask if there was like some adaptability there. If you sit while you're boxing, I saw a video. It looked like you were standing. Yeah. So I stand and he puts a soft box behind me. I can't really see it in the videos, but because of the way my foot turns out because of spasticity, we have it that we can safely have me fall. So we do really adapt. And so as he says, he feels really bad, but He's in my personal space a lot. <laughs> so you have to feel comfortable with your trainer because he does really is there protecting me and balancing me and helping catch me a lot. And you just kind of roll with it and you just kind of have to laugh if I do fall. But we do take a lot of safety measures. Like I just got a new brace for my ankle to help with my drop foot. And so he will say to me, Okay, Noel, before you sit down, please turn your foot, turn your knee. So he kind of just walks through and kind of just makes me remember because if not, I'll just go down. But we do a lot of resting in between because of fatigue. We make sure I'm drinking lots of cold water. We make sure that the, the gym itself is on the cooler side. We do pace ourselves. But we also have learned that when I do certain activities, it's better for me to do it faster, which you would never think. Like I would always think like, oh, slower is better for me. But we have found that some movements are actually better faster. 
What's also great is that he's willing to work and learn with my physical therapist. So sometimes they'll communicate and they're hoping to meet to really work on this program together because they have seen such improvement in my strength. There's things that he can work with me. And then now I can just focus better on like safety, like more safely walking with her rather than strength because I'm doing the strength with him. So it really shows how there is a team effort. So it's really great. And then to have the support, there's also the Parkinson's patients that all, well, I don't call them patients, Parkinson's members, the boxing members who kick ass also. And they show me how you just challenge through whatever you're doing and you can really get stronger and you really can build self-esteem. And it was a great community to kind of also go into because as we look as we're all dealing with a chronic illness, it might not be the same, but we understand what it's like to live with a chronic illness every day and to be out in the community. And it kind of brought us together, um, which is really nice to also have that group effort. I can only imagine, and it's just enhancing your life even more. I mean, you set out to just try some boxing, and now you've developed this whole community of support, and you are such a thriver. I mean, there's still, like everyone else, there are days I cry. That's life. There are days you feel bad for yourself. There are days I fired my physical therapist. I fired my boxing coach. I fired my my mental counselor therapist. You know, <laughs> But then they also just kind of laugh at me and they say, so how long till Noelle emails me that she really isn't firing me? And it usually is a <laughs> It's a process because there are tough days. I mean, it's not always rainbows and sunshine with a chronic illness. You know, you get dirty sometimes, but I always really try to focus on how to see over that, how to see the over the dark clouds. Um, it might take different times. Sometimes it's just me taking self-care of, Let's read a book and not think about what's going on in my life and just to change the attitude. So as I say, reprogramming your brain for resiliency is just so important. Reprogramming your brain for resiliency. I'm going to steal that a little bit. Is that's okay with you? Oh my gosh. There's so many things that are great that have come out of our conversation today. So you talked about if you have a challenge, you got to face it. You need to have a listening ear. Think of others' points of view. Best conversations happen when you're walking and allowing for that independence. That, that's what Mobility Aid does for you. It does not define your abilities. Your <laughs> You use your superpowers to normalize situations and just your openness with your family. And Gee whiz, I just feel the joy radiating off of you. And to be in the situation in which you are in and to be handling it the way that you do is incredible. And I know you have a lot of resources around you to help you be in that space. But if your mind is not in the right place, none of that matters. Noelle, thank you so, so much for being here with me today. Can you please share with people how they could reach out to you? Sure. So if you would like to follow me, Living Balanced. So that's on Instagram. Please reach out to Noelle. As you know and you heard from her story, one of her besties she met online. You just never know 
what the universe is going to bring to you. And so if you have questions for Noel, I mean, this was a 40 minute conversation that could have been four or five hours. And so I'm sure you may have more questions for this experienced thriver. Please reach out to her. And if you'd like to learn more about your core values, please visit the website at thrivingoversurvivingpodcast.com. There you can take the quiz. You can listen to Lauren finding out what her core values are and other resources. Noel, I hope you have a fabulous rest of your day and keep thriving. Awesome. Thank you so much. Rock it. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. If you would like to join our growing community of thrivers, there are a lot of ways to do so. Visit the website at thrivingoversurvivingpodcast.com. There you'll find links to all our social media, my blog, and lots more. See you next time when we chat it up with another autoimmune warrior on the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. Keep thriving. Thriving.